You're a receptionist in a doctor's office on the east side, not a hostess on Park Avenue. Some time ago on a podcast, you mentioned a director by the name of Max Offels, who I hadn't heard of previously. Or Opals, in some cases, depends. Sometimes he Offels, sometimes he Opals. Um, I hadn't heard of him, which was odd. And following that podcast, which I think was I'll Be Seeing You. It was, and the relevance was that they were both sort of black and white movies from the 40s. <laughs> nice link. <laughs> um, I looked into him and dug out a few films and the first one I tried was Court which was 1949 toward the end of his career and it's James Mason our favourite from uh, what was the other film? It was Age of Consent Age of Consent, yes Uh, and I liked it there we go yeah well that that was the first big surprise also I want to apologise for the uh, there's been some sounds on the computer here and that's because just before we started recording, you're having a tirade against uh, IMDb. And I was sort of thinking, oh, Matt, it's, here he goes again. But uh, no, you were so right. I just tried to look up Court on IMDb, and they'll only tell me films that are called Court from about 1999 onwards. It's insane. It is. The, the whole thing has been designed to just forget about the first 50 years of cinema. Uh, but also, they, every time they redesign it, it just becomes less and less practical, and you have to click four or five times to get the information you need, yes. whereas in the old days, it was all on one page. But enough about IMDb. <laughs> well, it's relevant, because I'm now trying to find Court 1949. Oh, you see, I couldn't search for it. I ended up searching for Max Opals and then going through there. Yeah, that's what I've just done. So I just if anybody's listening to Andrew, click on his computer. That's why I blame IMDb. Send them a nasty letter. Because it is called Court. But it just, if you look for a title of a film called Caught, you won't find it. Not this one. So, there's a number of remarkable things here, not least the fact that I've managed to find this. Uh, <laughs> you hadn't, number one, you hadn't heard of a film director, so that was pretty impressive in its own right. It's unusual. You know, I, I like to think that... It's unusual because having watched the film, I now know that he is an incredible director. Yeah. And... I don't understand why he's not more loudly Proclaimed. trumpeted. Yeah, I like trumpeted. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, other unusual thing is that you then went to watch one, a movie that I recommended effectively, and you liked it because we often disagree about these things. Well, we do because your taste is terrible for the most part, and mine is <laughs> refined. And... Just in case anybody's actually listening to this podcast, <laughs> Matt needs humouring, but his taste is really bad. My taste is great. I'm not so sure. I think there's only about four or five films you've hated so far out of about 50. <laughs> so yeah. it's but anyway, so it's a cause for celebration that you've discovered Max Offels, Offels and he's, he's, an, he's, an extra, he's a great filmmaker. I think you might even agree with that. It, yeah, it's difficult to explain um, from the outset, but 
what we need to do is go through the film a bit at a time and cover certain things that he does because this is no pedestrian director, but it is, is... a low-budget film, which is odd because... Okay, so he is, I would say, just to set the terms of discussion, I would call him a poet of the camera. He's a, an amazing, amazingly gifted film director in his ability to use the camera. And it might just be worth briefly mentioning how I knew of this guy. Uh, I love Stanley Kubrick. Uh, less so now than when I was growing up because I, I see the flaws in him, but I still think he's a great filmmaker. And I had a bunch of books about Stanley Kubrick, including Alex Walker's uh, very, very fine book about him. And in that, Kubrick was talking about his admiration for this guy called Max Offels. And I thought, oh, well, I just assumed that he was a, a foreign filmmaker, which he was. He, he came from Weimar, Germany. Uh, and that his movies would sort of be inaccessible and uh, dull and, you know, just sort of, you know, too highbrow for me or something. But then I started watching them and I was really taken with them. <clears throat> He's like no other director at the time. What's quite bizarre, and it sounds like an odd comparison to make here, but we've got a similar subject matter. and We've also got a similar visual uh, uniqueness to Citizen Kane. Which it is, yes. It seems there, like that's a, a very good comparison. It seems like a, an excessive comparison because <laughs> Citizen Kane is so widely regarded. But now, Citizen Kane was nineteen forty-one, maybe. No, th uh, I had it down as thirty-nine, but uh, it could be forty-one. Yeah. So it's, well, anyway, it's so about ten years late before 30s, this. Early forties, yeah. caught his late forties. So it's a good, good long time. It's a about 10 years on from Citizen Kane, right? Citizen Kane covers William Randolph Hearst, and this film covers Howard. Uh, I always get the two Hughes and Hawks mixed up, but it's... Yes, um... <laughs> that's easy to do. In fact, they knew each other, and they were sort of friends. Yeah. They're both aviators. But Howard Hughes is kind Hughes. of... Uh, I was going to say crazy. That's, that's uh, you know, too simple a word. He was a billionaire, an eccentric billionaire, uh, and he also was heavily involved in filmmaking. Howard Hawks, just for folks who are wondering, was a very good... <laughs> film director of the same period so this movie is indeed about a kind of Howard Hughes figure uh, a kind of cold cruel domineering billionaire he's a millionaire but you know in today's terms he'd be a billionaire there's a lot of parallels to the Randolph Hearst story as well so you've got a guy who you know he marries a young girl not for the right reasons more as something to add to his collection um, he's not marrying her because she's her well, in fact as we find out in the film he marries her just purely to get his own back on his own psychiatrist. He does it despite his psychiatrist because yeah. his psychiatrist says something like, like you'll never get married. And says, so I'll show you. That, which is the sort of petulant child this guy is, as well as sort of a captain of industry. Uh, but to go back to your comparison with Kane, I thought the same thing when I was looking at some of these deep focus, black and white shots of huge sets. Now you mentioned this is a low budget film. That needs a little bit of talking about. Uh, I have a slight edge over you. Uh, when we started talking about when you discovered that you like Max Offels, I said to you, are there any good books on him? And we, we discovered this book, both independently, this book called, called Max Offels in Hollywood by Lutz Bacher. And he's the chap who does the commentary on, on this uh, DVD that I've got. It's a very good DVD. I think it's from a company called Second Sight. It's well worth picking up if you can get a cheap copy because it's got some good extras. Uh, so I know a bit about the background of how this film came about. And it started out as a big budget production. But the problem was it was being made by an independent studio called Enterprise. And Enterprise 
did this movie called Ark of Triumph, uh, sort of very high budget, um, high end movie based on uh, an Eric Maria Reinhardt novel, you know, big bestseller of the time. Anyway, this movie was a huge disaster at the box office and that killed the studio just as they were going into production on court. The, the, so that this movie went from being a high budget movie to being a low budget movie. Now, what's interesting with that is that usually when you have a low budget film, you you have a director who will shoot very quickly and very economically. Yes. Someone didn't tell Max Offers that this was a low budget film because I the, some of the shots he achieves in this are not achieved quickly or easily. Um, there are some camera moves which are phenomenal. There are some sets which I, I'm still trying to work out the geography of in my head because they break away. Um, and as yeah, they're called wild walls, those walls that you can remove. <laughs> I know this because I listen to the commentary. It's not a phrase I've ever heard. A breakaway set is the one I would usually go with on that one. But yeah, it's. I'm, I'm glad that is what it is because it threw me at first there's a, a scene i mean we'll come to this in sort of something we'll have to go to chronological order in a minute but there is a scene in this where um oh dear i can't remember what everyone's called now um, well while you while you're coming up with i just want to say the, the reason we're going into such detail is that this is a brilliantly made film and Ophels is just such an extraordinary filmmaker like you talk about his camera work it's it's unparalleled certainly at the time um, no one if, on a low budget film um, we should go through the cast first you've got James Mason, Barbara Bel Geddes and Robert Ryan, your three main cast in the film and I um, want to just, there's one other character I want to name, who's Kurt Boise who plays Francie <laughs> Cartos who's sort of a, the, the pimp figure but that, those four are the essential uh, the, the main players in this yeah, it's actually it's a very small cast um, they do well with it James Mason, uh, well Barbara Bargettis is a young uh, wannabe model. Uh, so are we getting, before we jump into the, the, the chronological uh, analysis, I wanted to ask if you've ever heard, and you're bound to make an obscene joke about this, have you ever heard of a crab dolly? Well, I know what a dolly is and I know what a crab is, so a crab is a, a crab that sits on a dolly, presumably. So a dolly is a thing that you move cameras on, right? Yeah. And a crab dolly is one that, that allows it to move in uh, unusual ways. Instead yeah, of yeah. The, the normal plane of movement, it, you can sort of crab it around, I guess. So, so you can sort of scuttle sideways with it in a way you couldn't before. Well, these days invented... that is just a dolly. Uh, uh, most dollies do that now, but in back then they wouldn't have done that. It would have just been uh, Exactly right. And the thing is, uh, this it was invented, I believe, by the, the cinematographer on this, who's Lee Garms. And he invented it for, uh, it was invented for a Hitchcock film. And one of the points that they, they make in the discussion of this movie is that it's used so much more effectively than Hitchcock ever did. Hitchcock's... See, I'm not a big fan of Hitchcock. Um, I find him quite gimmicky. Well, I think that that's very true in comparison with Max Ophels because one of the great virtues of this filmmaker is, is the sort of effortless, smooth fluidity of, of his filmmaking, whereas you're talking about Hitchcock being gimmicky, you mean that things sort of um, jump out at you and they're contrived, whereas I would say one of the great strengths of Ophels is you almost don't notice what a fantastic filmmaker he is because it's so seamless. 
Well, point in question there in this film would be um, the dock. Uh, oh, yes. At the very beginning, where you've got a... Um, Oh, we need to you go, were we need so to go right chronologically. When I watched we? that, I, I almost didn't notice the things that you immediately notice. Is that it, so? It's a woman sitting on a pier waiting for a boat to come from a yacht out, out in the dark water on a, during the night to collect her. And you immediately worked out that there was no water, yeah. <laughs> there was no boat, and the crane isn't even there. The crane is a for, it's either a foreground uh, glass painting, yeah, or it's a cardboard cutout. I think it's a cardboard cutout. Fabulous. It's incredibly effective. So what I wanted to tell you about that is, just to give a bit more background, this film had a troubled history. Max Ophelt was scheduled to direct it. Then he had to drop out for reasons of illness and was replaced by a guy called John Barry. Yes, I'm not sure if that's spelled exactly the same way as the composer, but this John Barry was a member of Orson Welles' Mercury Theatre Company, so that's another uh, connection there. Barry started shooting it and he basically screwed up like he, he was running way behind and then Ophels had recovered and so that the, the producers basically sacked John Barry rehired <laughs> Ophels but at, at that point uh, as I mentioned Enterprise Studios it was beginning to go down the drain and the money was gone so in the original John Barry version they went on location to a for real dock to shoot that scene and they shot it for real I thought that might interest you I bet it didn't look as good no, so what Max Ophels had to do is he had to come up with a really cheap way of doing this. And the screenwriter on this film is called Arthur Lawrence, spelt L-A-U-R-E-N-T-S, unusual spelling. A terrific screenwriter, most famous for films like uh, West Side Story and The Way We Were. Anyway, the reason I'm singing about him now is because he was the one who made the suggestion that they just had a black cloth backdrop to stand in for the water and just had a stage technician holding a light and walk across the blackness like a boat coming across the black, the dark water and you might think that couldn't possibly work but boy did it work well the advantage of it is that as you're not on location and you're in a controlled environment you can control your lighting so you can have multiple setups whereas on location you'd probably only have two or three at best but also you can move your camera because you're not dealing with terrain you don't have to worry about taking some track out to location or anything like that and it works in his favor it looks terrific that sequence well that's the thing about the, the crab dolly that i keep banging on about they, they need you needed flat floors for that so you're exactly mm. right about that matt it, it enables Ophels to use that fluid camera of his which is it's so fantastic uh just for the historical record in case anybody's interested in about trickery in cinema Arthur Lawrence got that idea for doing the boat because he saw a play in Paris where they did the same thing to create the illusion of uh, a train coming into a station. It's the same technique. Uh, it's it's an old it's an old stage technique, but it's the same one they used as well in the musical of Phantom of the Opera to do the punting sequence under under the opera house. Which version are we talking about? The Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh really? Yeah, it was Paul Daniels did all the effects for that, the visual trickery, and that was one of his things. It's just it's a very old fashioned stage trick, but it works. Well, if Isn't it just... great? It works so well. So I think let's dive into a discussion of what this movie is actually about. Right. So, right. Oh, and again, this is, I'm sorry that I'm uh, playing the, I've listened to the commentary card, but it's so fascinating. So the film originally began with a series of sequences, uh, for instance, a young woman and her flatmate looking at a, a mink in a shop window. Now, all that has been completely conflated in the reshoots, that has all become two young women actually in a flat looking at a mink coat in a magazine. 
which I think is more effective. I do. But the only problem with that opening scene is that I very nearly turned the film off because of the music. Uh, I didn't really register the music except I think it wasn't great. It was just too what? loud. It was drowning them out. And it was really frustrating because it didn't need to be there. Well, it's an intimate scene about two working class girls with aspiration. Well, actually with dreams, ridiculous dreams of, of, of wealth and marrying Prince Charming, essentially. Are they that ridiculous? She achieved it pretty quick. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right to, to jump in. But also, just out of interest, there were originally three characters. Like this is crazy stuff. So there was, so our heroine is Barbara Bell Geddes playing a character called Leonora Ames, later known as Lee. And in the original shoot, the John Barry shoot, she had a flatmate at the beginning who then committed suicide. Then she had another flatmate, and then she had uh, a girl that who was the fellow model at the department store in the rewrite they all became one character well yeah keep it simple why would you yeah it's, yeah. it's much better um, was it the same writer was did arthur lawrence write that or did he yeah arthur lawrence is one of the heroes on this because they, they kept losing sets and losing money and he had to rewrite constantly to accommodate the uh, vicissitudes and necessities of the, the studio going down the drain at the same time there was major problems with the Breen people which is the censorship people which we'll get to in the fullness of time so yeah Arthur Lawrence was with it all the way the, the, the film is nominally based on a novel called Wild Calendar by Libby Block but apparently there was almost nothing left of that novel except the characters names by the time they finished with it but they're great names wait till we get to Smith Ulrich well exactly which I'm trying to think which studio this was so uh, this okay so it was Enterprise was the independent studio and they had a, a, a distribution deal with MGM. When Enterprise went belly up, MGM took over. But they, the, the reason is, one reason this film was not a huge success is MGM wasn't really interested in this adopted child, so to speak, and didn't do much to try and guarantee its success on release. Okay, interesting. Um, so yeah, we got, we got these um, two girls with their their aspirations Dreams. or whatever they yeah, want to do. Right. Um, and they sign up to a, a charm school. Uh, I love the charm school. Rather Can I just say? A school of charm. <laughs> yeah, one of the things about this charm school is that there's a there's a sign on the wall called personality recipe, which is... <laughs> <laughs> like, it's teaching these young women the way that they're supposed to behave. In the original version, they would, there's a sequence where she's been taught how to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> it's a lost world, Matt. Well, I mean, the cigarette thing comes up in every film we watch. And you think, God, are you really basing a whole lesson around smoking? <laughs> yeah. But the other thing about this sequence, and again, this comes down to, um, I think this would be uh, Offal's rather than the costume designer's choice. Bel Geddes is wearing a dress in these sequences, which is a black and white striped dress. And no one else is. They're all wearing plain colours. Yes, it, they're quite a crowded scene with all these students, right? She... She really is picked out of the frame well because it doesn't look like she's overdressed, but it just sets her out from all the others in the class. It draws the eye to her. Yeah, it's it's a lovely bit of design. It's a good dress too. <laughs> but uh, if you're right that Offals would consider those kind of things because he, he's just a man who really knows what he's doing when he's shooting a movie. It took me a while. I mean, I was about, I'd say, maybe 20 minutes into this. It was actually the, the peer sequence. Um, the doc that I thought hang on a minute this guy's actually pretty good so <laughs> thank yeah. you I, I'm so pleased that you liked it um, and it's interesting that that scene which was an absolute necessity as the mother of invention type scene that was the one that impressed you well isn't that always the way 
the less time you give someone to do something and the more they have to do it under pressure, the better the idea is to get around it, I find. If somebody has the capability to come up with really good ideas, yes. This is the Some problem people with... would just fold under pressure for a start. But there are other people who have everything too easy. There are some directors out there who don't have to ask for things, don't have to work for things, and they become pedestrian and they stop You're trying. certainly absolutely right that although Max Ophels was a director of genius, the constraints that he was put under here really made him operate at his highest level. Um, to draw, to, to illustrate what I mean by this, if you look at the early films of, for example, well, Dario Argento, who we've already covered, if you look at the early films of uh, Spielberg, James Cameron, they're trying a hell of a lot harder in the early days than they do in their more modern films. Well, Argento is the comparison that really cuts through because I've just watched some of his early movies, thanks to you, and... Well, in particular, Cat and Nine Tales, which is a masterpiece. It's just, it's just a flat-out masterpiece. From somebody, if I'd watched his later films, I just would have thought, well, you know, he's sort of, he's eccentric and he's colourful, but he's okay. But let's not go down yes. that rabbit hole. Uh, so Barbara Bel Geddes, as Leonora Ames, is this aspiring, hard-working, working-class girl. She goes to the charm school. One of the things, and this is very telling, is that... Um, this, she's called up on stage by the, the headmistress at the charm school and to, to act out some skit. And the, the headmistress takes this old um, fabric coat and says, all right, this is a mink coat and puts it on her, right? And then we you know, pretend this is a mink coat. Then we cut to a shot of a mink coat in a lift in an elevator and the camera pans up and it's Leonora. And we sort of think, how did she get a mink coat? But of course, what she is, is she's what they used to call a model because in the old days in department, well, they still do call them models, but most models are models at a photo shoot. Uh, in these days, you, what you used to have in a big department store is you'd pay these women to walk around wearing expensive jewellery or coats and, and just do a twirl in front of likely likely punters and say, you know, this is forty nine ninety five, ladies. Now, my problem with this is that I don't understand how you know who are the models and who are the customers. Presumably, <laughs> well, this is another sociological rabbit hole, but presumably <laughs> that if you're just a customer, you don't go up to people and try and sell them the coat you're wearing. That might be a, a or, telltale. But if you're just a customer and somebody walks up to you and says, oh, give us a 12. Oh, there must have been scope for, great scope for, especially if some you know, you're fabulous looking chick wearing an expensive coat, there must have been lots of mistakes made along that line. But this sequence, again, visually is superb. It's so well choreographed with that it's it feels very stagey but it what he gets away with it which is the models um you've got bel Geddes and you've got her friend there and they're talking to each other they're having a conversation but they're never actually standing in front of each other they're working the whole time so they're doing a sort of figure of eight around the set and people will come in and say oh how much is that dress and oh that looks amazing give us a 12 but they're still carrying on their conversation around all this yeah, the walk and talk is one of the, the masterpieces of uh, Max Ophel's repertoire. And uh, this is the point at which this character called Francie enters. And Francie is basically a pimp, isn't he? He's basically a procurer. Yeah, I, well, yeah, he makes things work for um, Max Ulrich. No, Smith Ulrich. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, stupid bloody name. Well, it's an interesting name because <laughs> Smith is such a mundane name and Ulrich is such an extraordinary name. Now, he's the multi-millionaire Howard Hughes figure and Francie played by Kurt Boas is basically a guy that he's who used to be a head waiter in a restaurant I think he said and he's now his job is to 
find attractive girls and invite them to parties, which he, he does by giving his business card to Leonora, which she turns down a number of times. But finally, sort of, he forces it on her. And it's her flatmate who really kind of browbeats her into accepting the invitation, isn't it? Yeah. And then she finds herself sitting on a dock and the party's on a boat and she can't get to the party. And so this, as we said, this wonderfully evoked non-existent motorboat comes across this dark water, which also doesn't exist. And out of it climbs Robert Ryan. And she's sort of begging him to give her a lift to the yacht, not realising that he's the man that she wants to meet. He is the millionaire. It is his yacht. And he's abandoned his own, very characteristically, he's abandoned his own party. And as soon as she clocks this, she very happily accepts his invitation to go for a ride with him in his sports car. There's a good conversation in that car where he's asks her about charm school, asking what else they taught her at charm school. And she's got a fantastic line, which is, oh, diction, makeup and fencing. You love that line, don't you? I, and I, I do regret that she doesn't get to use her fencing because there's a I couple know. times in this. <laughs> but what's charming about fencing? It's, I suppose it's posh. You could call it posh school, couldn't you? I mean, that would be equally valid. I don't think the upper classes in any country, women, fence that often. I love the idea of some chick, you know, in a fencing outfit, fencing. You know, I've, it's a very modestly blazed kind of image. I love it. Well, we'll be doing die another day soon enough, so you'll get your fill. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> Madonna. Anyway, so let, let's again, let's about that. The better. Now, a couple of interesting things to note. Uh, when she gets in the sports car, this is very. It speaks very clearly of the character of Smith Allrig. He's left his party because he wants to go and do some business. He, he's going to go. And uh, it's the middle of the night, but he wants to visit one of his business installations. Now, in the original script, this was, uh, it was an oil. Uh, I've, I've forgotten the exact word, but you, you have, you know, places where you're pumping the oil out. It was sort of like an oil installation that he was going to. Refinery? And not quite. It's, like, um, it's where you pump it out rather than when, when you refine it. There's lots of these places in California and Los Angeles. Well, I'll think of the word in a minute. But this is very interesting because... Both Robert Ryan and Barbara Belgevis were under contract to RKO, and RKO had just been taken over by, guess who? Well, presumably MGM. Nope, Howard Hughes. Howard oh. Hughes was now the owner. So he had complete script approval <laughs> over anything these people appeared in. And James, James Mason, in his book, in his autobiography, I know this just because it was quoted on the commentary track, says that they, they sent the script over fully, fully expecting Howard Hughes to just, you know, have a fit because the character of Smith Ulrich is very clearly based on, but apparently Hughes was very uncharacteristically kind of um, sensible and forgiving about that. He just asked that they didn't dress Robert Ryan in rumpled clothes, which was a sort of characteristic of Hughes, and also that he wasn't in the oil business anymore. So we, they don't go to the, the oil installation. Instead, they go to a, a warehouse, and that's where we find that Leonora Ames has been abandoned in the sports car while Robert Ryan's Smith Ulrich's in there doing his business and she's actually fallen asleep. And he comes back out and wakes her up and she he says some line about, oh, sorry, I left you out here for hours. And she has this line, which I adore. She says, oh, I was just having a delightful cat nap, which is obviously <laughs> something she's been taught to say at charm school. But she did seem very well rested. I wouldn't be able to sleep in a sports car. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that fencing. It's worn her out. Exactly. Um, what follows is a sure sign of our low budget because 
very rapidly we just dissolve and they've had three dates that we've never seen. Yes, and, and uh, well, you know what? In the original script, again, th- those dates existed. Yeah, I... They were supposed to be shot, so, so that the intent was to shoot, shoot those and show them. I'd like to have seen them, because as it stands, there's not a lot... It, what it does to Leonora's character is it makes it look like she's only in it for the money. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case. But James Mason will later indeed think that's the case, but let's, we'll come to that then. Yeah, and in which case we need to be on her side. And it's hard because all we've got to go on is the fact that this guy is a massive arsehole from day one. And rich. But rich. <laughs> and that's the thing, he's rich. And, that's... and she, we've only ever seen her try and get onto his yacht, you're quite right, at this point. Yeah, and then suddenly they're just getting married. Yeah, so that undermines all of that. So in the scene in the, the psychiatrist's office, as we mentioned earlier, the psychiatrist is going on about how he'll never get married. And just to, just to defy him, <laughs> the highly mature and emotional, emotionally sophisticated Smith Ulrig, I'm being ironic, decides he's going to marry Barbara Bel Geddes. And that, that we then have a montage of newspaper headlines, including my favourite, Model Nabs Millionaire. <laughs> There's been a few. And under that, my my things I've noted down, I've written the camera moves so beautifully and smoothly that you don't even notice the camera's moving. That's just sort of a general observation about a lot of shots in this. Sorry, I just got pounced on by a cat and then it ran off. I know, that's always a good thing. And the next sequence, which is I love, is that they are now living on Long Island and the camera moves from a window showing snow falling at night to Francie playing the piano, he's quite a good piano player for a pimp, to Barbara Bell Geddes sitting in the background. It's just one of those wonderful, beautiful sequences. Do you think the snow is knowingly reminiscent of Citizen Kane? Do you think they knew they were making a very similar film? Uh, well, Citizen, it would be unlikely for them not to have been aware of the existence of Citizen Kane, but uh, so, yeah. Because it, it feels like Xanadu in the snow. It feels a very similar sort of vibe. Well, we are now in the set that was built when this was still a big budget production because it's the inside of this mansion is huge. It's beautiful. Um, but the trouble is, I mean, as you say, it's MGM. They've got so many flats left over from other productions. that I Which it, would be very useful later on when they were desperately trying to <laughs> um, conflate s- scenes in the script and find locations to shoot them in. It does feel like that at times. Her bedroom uh, later on, uh, when she's having a bit of a breakdown, uh, I think is probably lit very darkly for a good reason. I don't think it's a finished set. Well, just to jump ahead, do you remember the nightclub sequences? The, where they're I remember where, the band. On their first date, and then they're, they're dancing, right? At James yeah. Mason and Barbara Belgettis. That That's basically a bunch of uh, fixtures set in front of a black cloth. Uh, and... Max Ophels had to decide whether he wanted to spend what little money he had building a set or lavish it on extras. So he decided to have almost no set, underlight it, it is a nightclub, and pack it with extras, which lends a really interesting feel to it. Always the right thing to do, though, because you can create depth just by having eight or nine people in a scene. You just keep moving them around with every setup. Well, he had a lot of people in that, especially on the dance floor, and the sequence where James Mason and Barbara Belgettis go start dancing and they're stepping on each other's feet and laughing because it's so crowded that apparently was for real that was i think i believe the first take and uh, they left that in there because it, it just seemed like 
so spontaneous and natural. Nice. Doesn't happen often in Hollywood but, around but, that time. But but again, like the scene on the dock, you just underlight it and you get away with using what they called a scrim, a black background cloth. Yeah. We did it at college. We managed to create a whole restaurant with four people, a chair and a black cloth. <laughs> yeah, you, you really have to know what you're doing with the camera, but then Max Ophels does. Yeah, well, you just need a bit of confidence in your story and your actors to make people not look at the sets. That's yeah. ideally, you know, if people are looking at the sets, then something's really wrong with your film. Well, that's very true. So the, this sequence uh, in the Long Island Mansion is basically to set up the fact that this marriage is a terrible mistake for Leonor. And also, in fairness, to Smith Ulrich. And there's a nice scene here, which we've discussed already, but there's a, a scene where, uh, what's his name? The, the, the little camp uh, procurer. the pimp. Yeah, he's <laughs> playing the piano. It's something like, what is it, three o'clock in the morning and they have to stay up waiting for Smith to come yes, home. Yes, they can't, they can't go to bed. Like, Smith is completely neglects his wife, but he expects her to stay up all night until he deigns to come home. And it's just this constant piano motif that he just keeps playing over and over again. And even... Um, uh, Leonora says we can just shut up well but she slaps him doesn't she oh, she slaps slap. him and then Smith Ulrich pulls up outside and instantly like they're friends again because they they're so terrified of Smith that, that they it throws them into an alliance so he as soon as he turns up at the door Francie who's just been slapped picks up this comb and gives it to her to comb her hair like quickly darling comb your hair <laughs> and she says oh, I'm sorry I slapped you and he's like oh it's all forget forgotten it shows the sort of reign of terror they live under well, they're just staff. Yeah, one thing we, that we should mention plot-wise, which was established in the psychiatrist's office, is that Smith Ulrich has what I would call panic attacks, but what in this film is called a heart attack. Uh, whenever he doesn't get his way, he has this kind of physical attack, although the, the psychiatrist says there's nothing organically wrong with your heart, it's all psychological. That's important because Smith Ulrich is about to have one <laughs> right now. <laughs> he is. Well, he's come back at three, three o'clock in the morning uh, to show some film that they've been shooting all day. About, about his, uh, his business concerns, yeah. Yeah, but it's just lots of footage of oil wells. I mean, obviously that's the stock footage they managed to get hold of, but Jesus. Yeah, I hope Howard Hughes didn't see the oil wells on there. <laughs> Very true. Um, there's, oh, again, there's some lovely lighting in this. There's a, a scene where you've got the, all the guys sitting around in the, in the uh, screening room. And yeah. then you hear Leonora laughing in the background. And uh, Smith turns around and the light comes on just at her table and suddenly it's she appears brilliant. in the back of frame. It really is good, yeah. Um, I, I love that. Uh, and again, I mean, the look on Belgadis. Belgadis is really good in this. I, I, I know the name, but I don't think I've ever seen her in anything. I didn't... This was Originally, we had Ginger Rogers slated to appear in this oh, film. And Bar so nice. Barbara Belgadis was a replacement. I really like her. I found her really appealing yeah given that as we've already said the character as finally filmed is not entirely sympathetic she con contributes a lot to making it sympathetic i think with yeah. a different actresses may not have worked no we care about it we care about it just because of the way barbara bell Geddes is when it would be so easy to dismiss her as a gold digger the character of leonora ames well also she's constantly trying the amount of abuse she takes in this film and she's still seems to be trying to make the marriage work which is yeah. adorable but insane however after this spat that they have at the screening um she essentially says she's going to walk out on him and he, he has one of those 
patented heart attacks. <laughs> uh, and this, is, this results in her leaving him and going to work in a menial job in New York City. Well, yeah, the idea is, is that he says that she was in it for the money, um, which she was. Um, so in retaliation, she says that she can get a job and support herself and do it all herself. Which is where the sort of main plot kicks in, because yeah. she gets a job in a, at the office of two impoverished doctors, one of whom is the extraordinarily named Larry Quinada, played by James Mason. Now, a couple of interesting things. One is, this was Mason's first Hollywood movie. He was a big star, but he'd done British pictures before, so that was interesting. Yeah, and he's superb. Well, I, he is superb, but I made the note that Michael York based his entire early screen persona on James Mason, because as soon as Mason opens his mouth, I thought, that sounds very familiar. Somebody talks exactly like that, and it's Michael York during his first few movies. Um, when we did uh, Age of Consent... Accent? Oh, sorry. The Age of Consent, and I said um, James Mason is... He's not a great actor. I, I, I find that it's always James Mason in a different suit. But he's so likeable when he's playing like because actually oddly enough I think up to this point he'd mainly played villains, um, but he's got a very likeable presence on screen. Which works I think he's a very favor. effective actor. I think it would be wrong to downgrade his acting entirely, even though he is, you know, always James Mason. But he's very likeable and he comes across very well in what we learn about the making of the film. So, for instance, the studio was saying. Why isn't Ophel shooting more close-ups of our star? Because without Ginger Rogers in the picture, James Mason is now the big-name star. But James Mason was saying, like, no, he's doing, Ophel's is doing these fantastic tracking shots and long takes where he's at the, Mason is in the background, but that's because that's the best way to tell the story. There are very, very few close-ups in this film. I did notice that. But I assume that was Ophel's shooting uh, theatrically because it is quite a theatrical production you mean as though <clears throat> seeing the action through a proscenium march yeah um, then you get these bizarre sequences one coming up in fact where you you the camera moves across four rooms following james mason all the way through them yeah that's those are the wild walls <clears throat> i mentioned they were gone they pulled those walls out and uh, in the commentary they said that was very unusual because it's it's what sort is? of like it's revealing the making of the sausage if you know what i mean well, I mean, it's not unusual. People did do that, but it's going across all four rooms is quite it's a remarkable. It's virtuoso sequence. I mean, it's it's audacious. And the sequence that I was going to talk about earlier, but we're coming up to now, is it's close. Um, there's a sequence in Leonora's flat, and it's her quite... dingy little apartment where she now lives because she she's no longer rich. Well, Smith comes to visit her there, and. Or is it James Mason? Anyway, somebody you know, knocked, when, when when there is a knock on the door, I was watching it the second time. I, f I fully expected it because what happens is, um, although we the audience know that James Mason and Barbara Belgettis are going to get together, it's not going to be an easy route because although she's now working as a receptionist in this doctor's office, he's quite mean to her, hmm. and she quits and she goes back to her flat in the scene that we're talking about. And there's a knock on the door, and I fully expected it to be James Mason, but no. The big surprise is that it's Smith Ulrich, her husband, who's sort of come back and is contrite. It's such an odd shot. I, I really like it because it's overcomplicating things like you wouldn't believe. Which, which shot in particular? <clears throat> well, he's in the doorway. He knocks at the door. 
Yeah. Um, she opens the door, but then the camera, rather than just pulling back and letting him enter the room, the camera pulls round out into the corridor past the false wall and then goes through the door with him. But what obviously happens is that that chunk of wall in front of us has to break away and come away while the camera's moving around because otherwise oh they'd never God. fit it through the door. Yeah. And you think, I, I mean, I, I, I think I get the idea is that they, he's trying to give us uh, Smith's first impression of how small the flat is. And if you right. just look at it as a wide shot, it doesn't work. You have to come round and f come with him into the room oh, to see how small it is. Oh, it has to be sort of cramped, right. Yeah. Um, it's really effective. And I had to wind that back and look at it because <laughs> I, the scene started the, and I thought, hang on, what just happened there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, had, I had to do that with, with the scene, with the piano, for instance. So one often, it's such fluid, lyrical, wonderful filmmaker that you you don't notice what he's done until he's done it and then you thought how the hell did he pull that off I, and I didn't even notice it was done so smoothly I didn't even notice the scene you're talking about what I did notice is that Robert Ryan the back of his coat is wet as though he's been out walking in the rain I just thought it was a really lovely touch because it lends a bit more reality because of course they're in a studio somewhere he hasn't been out anywhere yeah uh, actors love that with the watering can I've seen that in action before <laughs> Well, and so what happens in the scene is that there's a reconciliation and Smith Ulrich invites her to come on the honeymoon they never had. They never had it because he's basically a shit, right? He's obsessed with his work. And so she says, I'll oh, turn out the lights. And she gathers her few pitiful blongs and leaves the flat. And he turns out the lights behind him. And there's a great bit where he goes in to turn out the lights in the kitchen. He says, on this side? Like, is the wall switch on this side? She says, no, on the other side. <laughs> it sounds crazy of me to bring that up, but it's just, it's what somebody would actually really do in a real situation. <laughs> yes. And somebody had to think that and rehearse that and tell him to do that. And it lends a great sense of reality to it. I just love those little tiny authentic details. There's, um, we've actually skipped a really good line. Which, Come back to it, please. Um, it's when Leonora visits the two doctors for the first time. And uh, of these two doctors, James Mason is just a, a regular pediatric uh, doctor, specialises in kids. And the other guy specialises in births. I, I can't think what the bloody word is now. Um, and he describes it as um, he brings kids into the world and I make sure they live, they survive, or something like that. It's a really good line of uh, way of describing the pair of them. Um, I like that line. Well, there's a nice dub, double act. The other doctor's, I think his art, no, I can't find his name at the moment, but he's uh, really terrific. That's, so, uh, Frank again, Ferguson is Dr. Hoffman. Yeah, the original concept is that, that he was good, they're both going to be kind of young, handsome doctors. And then, the, and Ophel said, no, 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 we want the other guy to be like an old coot to, to emphasize the, the differential between the two of them. And what works really well with that and it, it was the right decision because you have that scene where um, Belle Geddes realises she's pregnant and needs to speak to a doctor and she obviously doesn't want to speak to James Mason but uh, <laughs> Frank Ferguson's fantastic in that scene I think he plays it really well oh he's really good yeah <clears throat> uh, and this film is surprisingly um, adult in some ways like I, we're at a time when you could barely mention pregnancy in a movie and they actually say um Whose child are you having at one mm. point? Yeah, I mean, his handling of it, like I say, as a, as a doctor, typically in films like this, or this time, you would expect her to be chucked out on the street immediately and him be appalled and outraged, but he just doesn't even react, possibly because of the type of doctors they are, in that they're not helping... Uh, oh, Dr. Hoffman, Frank Ferguson, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's very kindly and sort of, yeah, very matter-of-fact about it, isn't he? He just tells her to go somewhere to get a test to confirm things. Yeah. 
He also does say, does Quinada know? Do, yeah. <laughs> so he's very aware that Larry Quinada, James Mason, is in love with her. But later on, after, uh, after uh, Leonora has a shock, pregnant woman who's been shocked, <laughs> James Mason pours her a stiff whiskey to drink this. <laughs> you know, this I remember it's, that. A, it's another world. And also, they're, they're, they're smoking like chimneys all through her pregnancy. It's terrible. It's terrifying. But there's this, there's this lovely bit where she's forsaken her mink when she left Smith Ulrich. And uh, Quinada, who's rapidly falling in love with her, discovers that she doesn't have a coat to her name because she's given up her mink. Actually, she leaves the mink behind. Uh, she goes back for the honeymoon, right? And then she learns from Francie the Pimp that the honeymoon was just, was actually a lie. In fact, what is happening is that Smith Ulrich is about to do a tour of all his business facilities in the United States and he's pretending it's a honeymoon and he's going to take her along on it. As soon as Leonora finds this out, she's livid and she goes, leaves, goes back to her job at the doctor's and leaves behind the mink. So that's a cru the mink is a crucial symbol throughout this film. Well, I think it's the final shot of the film, isn't it? Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is very touchingly, I've just got to do a quick government health warning here that mink coats are horrible things and minks are lovely little creatures and you have to slaughter uh, in huge numbers of them in a horrible fashion to make a fur coat. End of message. So anyway, James Mason uh, discovers she no longer has a coat except for like a flimsy little raincoat. So he goes out and buys her this, you know, some big cloth coat to keep her warm. And he says this line, he's, <laughs> he says, how much would it cost to buy you a warm coat? And then he gives it to her and he says, it's not mink. But it will keep you warm. It's not mink. I just love it. <laughs> you right. Did that kill the entire <laughs> so, podcast? I thought you'd frozen. Hang on. I, I'm going to have to put a test turn on that just to. That's pick right. It up. Do, I need to pull the, the, the headphones out. Do no, I? you don't. That's yeah. fine. I only need it at my end. Okay, cool. Otherwise, I'll never find that to take it out. That's fine. <clears throat> so now we've got James. We've got Lee is pregnant. Leonora's pregnant. Uh, James Mason's in love with her. She's in love with him. Smith Ulrig is aware of what's going on between them because he's having them followed. Because he's you know he's a paranoid millionaire, so he's got detectives on their case. And Barbara Belgettis, sorry, Leonora has this confrontation with him. She wants a divorce. Now, this apparently was a very difficult scene to write because divorce was another no-no under the censorship at the times. And the, the basic thing was you can never have divorce being motivated by a sympathetic character. It has to be like some evil villain. So in this scene, and it's quite effective, Smith Ulrich says, you can have a divorce. I'll let you have a divorce under one condition. And the condition is that he get to keep the child. Like some kind of, you know, uh, uh, Grimm's fairy tale, evil no, he's going to keep the child. He's going to steal her child. Which partly explains the end of this film and partly excuses it. But there's well, a couple of the bits weirdest that... ending ever. It's the weirdest happy ending ever. I know. I I've never seen at. so many people happy about an infant death. <laughs> yes, it, it, I've written miscarriage <laughs> equals happy ending. And, and the trouble is it's so quick. There's not a gap. So it's not like you have a brief moment of, oh, well, okay, everything's going to be fine now. Or there's not like it fades out and two weeks later... It's within yeah. a few minutes of hearing that the kid's dead. Everyone's overjoyed. Exactly. <laughs> and I, that really sits very strange. But when you listen to the commentary, 
these are all consequences of both of the, the huge cuts that had to be done, but also the interference from the, the censors. Because one yeah. of the things the censors insisted, because in the original script, Smith Ulrich has a final heart attack about being thwarted, and this time he actually dies. And they said, no, he can't die, because otherwise sin, sin wins out. Yeah. So they had to kill the kid instead, effectively. <laughs> so th this is all to do with the incredible pressure of rewrites due, due to loss of budget and also vast interference with the censors. So apparently when they were making the film, they were aware that this was a really... It wasn't that back in 1949, miscarriages were you know, an occasion for opening the champagne. Even at the time, they realised it was a very strange way to try and drag a happy ending out of left field. <clears throat> There's one other bit that we did. I, I skipped ahead to the end there. Which yeah, but please but, um, go back. Smith has another fake heart attack. Um, this is the one where he ends up lying beside his pinball machine, which has fallen yes. over too. <laughs> and there's a shot where Barbara Bell Geddes comes in, and yeah. her face is brilliant. Yes, it is. She, oh, I, I really like that. Also, I, I did think he was going to die, and now that I know that the censors poo pooed no, the whole he, idea, he was going to die. That was going to be his fatal terminal fake heart attack. But another consequence of that was, if you notice, he's begging her to get him some water so he can take a pill, and she doesn't. She just yeah. walks out. So she would have been responsible for his death. So there are all kinds of problems that would have come from the fact that he, if he had died. It's unfortunate. I, I think um, the ending isn't as strong as the rest of the film. And for those reasons we've outlined. Yeah, yeah. the tone just suddenly... I know. Switches and you think it's like the baby's dead. Oh, that's great! We can get married now. <laughs> La, da, 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 da. And th th this is in the hospital. And the final shot is of the nurse carrying away the mink coat, which they basically said, "Oh, she doesn't want the mink coat anymore. Dispose of it as you see fit." Right? Yeah. And she's <laughs> so yeah, wiggling off down the corridor with with some jaunty music, if memory serves. Yeah. So it's the it's a strange ending, but but we now know why it's such a strange ending, and we yeah. can perhaps forgive it. This is a really terrific movie. It's your introduction to Max Ophels. I wanted to say, can we please watch Reckless Moment next, which is from a similar period and also has James Mason in it. Yeah, it's the next one he did. Um, same year. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll give it a go. Fantastic. So, uh, big thumbs up to Court. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Um, I, I love this film. It's a long time since I've discovered a new director that I really like, so this was a, a treat. I can't tell you how pleased I am. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. Some darlings never know when they are well off.